I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins, the banking editor here at the Financial Times. Yesterday, the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision announced new capital rules for the world's banks, which is significantly tougher than any previous regulations for the sector. At the heart lies the agreement that banks will be forced to dramatically increase the amount of capital they have to set aside to insure against potential losses. We'll be discussing what impact this will have on the banks on this week's show. After that, we'll turn our attention to the news that Bob Diamond is to take over as Chief Executive of Barclays. We'll be discussing whether the move, putting an investment banker at the helm, is a significant indicator of where the future of the bank lies. And then we'll hear from our New York office about a feature we're running in the paper over the next few weeks on the big three mergers that came out of the chaos that the collapse of Lehman Brothers caused two years ago, kicking off with Bank of America and Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch was the weakest party uh, of the two. Nevertheless, Bank of America paid a very, very full price. Finally, we'll be looking at another career move, that of Stephen Green, the chairman of HSBC, and his appointment now as trade minister from January in David Cameron's government. We'll be asking what this means for HSBC and indeed for the government. And to answer all of these questions and more, we're delighted to welcome this week's guest, Arturo de Frias Marquez, head of banks research for investment bank Evolution Securities, who'll be joining us on the line in just a moment. In the studio with me are Brooke Masters, the FT's chief regulation correspondent, and Charlene Goff, our banking correspondent. So let's start with Basel. Arturo, thanks very much for joining us this morning. Give us your brief summary of, of what you think came out of Basel in terms of the surprises and the key key elements of this Basel III proposal. Well, I think that the, the summary is, is, uh, is reasonably easy. After many months of threats, if you want, from Basel, saying that uh, or implying that the changes were going to be terrible and there were going to be a lot of banks struggling to meet their capital rules, I think the outcome has been quite friendly. I mean, of course, as you said before, the capital levels now are going to be much higher than what they used to be a few years ago, but they are lower than what we have been fearing. A core equity tier one capital ratio that used to have to be 2%, that in future is going to have to be 7% effectively. I think that the relevant changes are not in the headline number. The relevant changes are more in how you get to that number, because before most of the banks had a 5.56 or 6.5% core tier one Anyway, the, the, for me, the big change is in investment banking, the massive increase in weightings for the trading assets and also the massive increase in, in weightings for the securitization business. So the core tier one ratio that we need to have now, the 7%, is not massively different from what many banks had uh, before, but the way it's calculated is completely different. And of course, the investment banks are the ones that are footing the bill. Brooke, would you agree that the basically the number, that the 7% number that everyone is citing is something that most banks can cope with? But if you also factor in the way you get to that number changing significantly over the coming years, that's where the real pain will lie. So it's far more difficult to analyse. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that the deductions, the things that get taken out both at the top of what you can count towards your capital and also the reweighting of the bottom half of the ratio, as Arturo said, 
suggests that it's going to be a lot more expensive to be an investment bank and a lot harder to make a lot of money as an investment bank. And so that may force a number of banks to reconsider their business models. So Arturo, is it I mean, a coincidence that over the weekend we saw Deutsche Bank announcing a 9.8 billion euro capital raising? They, they're saying that a lot of that will go towards their acquisition of, of Postbank, but they also do admit that it's to, to strengthen their capital ratios. It's not a coincidence, of course not. Uh, Deutsche, I think, has been waiting for Basel to clarify before launching its rights issue, which has been rumored and expected for many months because it was very clear that they were short of capital. I would say one-third, roughly, of, of the 9.8 that they are announcing now is more of a cushion for the rest of the bank, and the two-thirds are for the post-bank. So in, in rough numbers, well, they say that post-bank would consume 7.7 billion, but there is, I mean, there is leeway in their calculations. So I would say two-thirds is for, is for post-bank, one-third is to meet the, the core capital ratio. Right. In terms of for the bank, Banks, uh, as you say, most of the banks we cover, um, probably except we Credit Agricole, are already well above, well, well above the seven percent quarter one. We have a lot of banks, including the likes of HSBC or Standard Chartered or Santander, um, that are uh, above ten percent quarter one. So I can say that uh, I don't see any major bank struggling to get uh, to get to these uh, to these new numbers. Does that mean you don't expect anybody else to to be raising capital anytime soon either? No. Not uh, in Europe, at least definitely. No, I'm, I'm reading we don't cover U.S. banks. I'm reading that some of the Americans, like uh, Bank of America or Citigroup, could be could be struggling a bit with these ratios. But in Europe, uh, I think all the large banks we cover are fine in terms of capital. As I said, the only exception is Credit Agricole, which has always had a, a very difficult uh, corporate structure and lots of deductions. Yes, well, I'm sure we'll be analysing very closely uh, on both sides of the fence who really is going to suffer the most over the uh, over the next days and weeks. Let's move on now to Barclays and, and Bob Diamond. Charlene, I know, has been following this story very closely. Bob Diamond was named, he's the head of the Barclays Capital Investment Bank. He was named last week as the, as the next chief executive of Barclays to take over next spring. There was some pretty feisty responses from some elements of uh, of the government. Do you think this is all just a bit of bit of noise, and that it's all going to go away, and that everyone's going to be uh, happy about this, or, or is it going to continue? Do you think, Charlene? Well, I think probably this will continue. I mean, definitely into next year when we see the banks start to review their bonuses for for this year, and it will be very interesting to see whether they constrain that a little bit in in light of the political reaction. I mean, the the noise around Bob Diamond really came from the fact that he's just one of the most highly paid bankers. He's been on Wall Street. He's an investment banker through and through. So putting him at the helm of Barclays was quite a, a bold move by the UK bank in this environment. And I think that was reflected in the immediate reaction we saw from from the government. I'm sure Barclays would say that he's conscious of that issue. And indeed, in, in weekend interviews, he, he made that explicit. And indeed, he's he's cut down his, his salary package, or the yeah. board has cut down his, his package to uh, £11.5 million. Which is still huge by which is many still people's huge standards, by many, but yeah. smaller than he was getting, yeah. Arturo, the pay issue and the political row around this has taken hold of the story, if you like. That's the dimension everyone's been following. But there's obviously far more fundamental business implications to analyse. What do you think is the most important aspect of Bob Diamond's taking the helm at Barclays? I think the most important aspect is uh, the fact that investment banking, the investment banking business will massively dominate 
the capital allocation of Barclays. I'm not sure we like that. Well, in fact, we don't like that. We rate Barclays as hell. Is that just your suspicion because he's an investment banker and you think he'll prioritise investment banking? Or do you yeah. have any concrete um, I think I think the retail, the retail franchise they have right now is small. It's not having critical size in most of the countries they are, like, for example, Spain or Italy. And it's not one of the best retail franchises in, in, in the UK either. I mean, in our numbers, three quarters of the capital of Barclays will be reallocated to investment banking by the end of 2012, because, of course, all the regulatory changes that we alluded to before are going to increase very substantially the, the capital intensity of investment banking. So I think, I mean, there are two sides of this. First of all, I think it's absolutely fair that Bob Diamond has become the CEO or is going to become the CEO because he has been the most successful manager within, uh, within Barclays. His division is now making most of the money. He's also so the natural successor, isn't he? I mean, I think he is. Uh, the, the retail division and the corporate division contribute less than one quarter of the total earnings. I would say even so, though, I mean, he yes, he's been head of Barcat, but he's also been president of the group and he's been extremely close to John Varley for the last five years. And so he has been very involved in in the strategy for the retail business as well. So, you know, there's all this criticism that he doesn't have that direct experience or interest in the retail part of the group, but actually he has been... He has been there very closely sitting sitting there in, in you know with the people deciding the strategy for that, and he would argue that he has been uh, very interested in that and, and actually there will be no change and Barclays have been very strong about this there will be no shift in the strategy from the last few years, so it would be really interesting to see whether <laughs> that's true absolutely we'll be we'll be testing the rhetoric against how the business evolves over the next months and, and years i'm sure. Let's move on now to the anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers. It's now two years to the day almost since Lehman collapsed. Um, we've had a s- series of big mergers that came out of the, the chaos of the collapse, not least in the US. We're going to be looking at these mergers in depth in the Financial Times over the next few weeks, starting with the acquisition of Merrill Lynch by Bank of America. To tell us more about this story and the features coming up in the paper, I spoke to Francesco Guerrera, who is responsible for financial services in our New York office. I started off by asking Francesco to remind us about the Merrill deal and what its implications have been. The Lehman bankruptcy, I guess, was not just the biggest bankruptcy in the U.S. history uh, and the biggest bankruptcy in the world, but it was also the catalyst for a series of dramatic mergers in the financial services sector, all done, it's got to be remembered, from a position of extreme weakness by at least one of the parties. The Bank of America Merrill Lynch deal was done uh, right during the weekend in which Lehman was failing, so it's particularly momentous uh, and linked to the biggest names in U.S. Uh, history and uh, uh, from two sides of the aisle, if you like, a big, huge commercial bank like Bank of America and uh, one of the preeminent investment banks in Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch was the weakest party uh, of the two. Nevertheless, Bank of America paid a very, very full price. The original price was in shares of about $50 billion. Bank of America shares went down so much that in the end it went, ended up being $17 billion. But it was a huge acquisition in the history of Bank of America and one that created a, a universal bank that is one of the biggest in the United States and in the world. Putting together basically the strength of Bank of America's retail presence and commercial presence right across the US with Merrill Lynch's global investment banking capability. Is it? Is it? I mean, it was a great deal on paper and obviously very opportunistic. Is it too early, two years on, to say whether it's been a success or not? The deal had an incredibly troubled birth. If you cast your mind back to two years ago, the day after the deal was announced, Ken Lewis, the chief executive of Bank of America at the time, said, and I quote, this is a thing of beauty. He talked about the ability to merge the commercial retail banking presence 
of Bank of America on the high streets with the investment banking and brokerage presence of Merrill Lynch, particularly catering to high net worth individual, rich individuals. That was the theory. The practice was a lot more tortured than that, uh, particularly because Bank of America had trouble financing the deal. I had to uh, receive $45 billion in government money just to close the deal. Mr. Lewis has since lost his job as well. What's happening now as the economy recovers and the financial sector recovers is that you're starting to see the benefit of putting together the two platforms because you can see how you know putting together commercial retail banking with its strength in the consumer and corporate sector and the investment banking and the wealth network that Merrill had is starting to produce strong synergies and ability to cross-sell. And to an extent, it's kind of replicating the universal model that other banks, really successful ones like JP Morgan, um, already had, I guess. And that brings us on to the other deals that you're going to be looking at. JP Morgan and its acquisition of Bear Stearns, firstly, and then Wachovia Wells Fargo. Just tell us a little bit about those and, and what you're going to be looking at in those pieces. Let's start from JP Morgan first. I mean, if you look back at the history of the crisis, there is little uh, doubt that JP Morgan was the bank that benefited the most from the crisis in the US financial service sector, in particular because they plugged two fundamental strategic holes. One was a presence in investment banking, in particular in that lucrative niche, which is servicing hedge fund clients and commodities traders, so the prime brokerage and the commodities traders. That they did by buying Bear on the cheap through a government assistance deal when Bear was about to collapse. And then they plugged their geographical hole in their retail bank in the U.S. by buying Washington Mutual, another trouble institution, which they pay very little for. That enabled them to uh, get into areas uh, such as Florida and the south of the United States, where J.P. Morgan Chase had never been a presence. Historically, J.P. Morgan Chase was very strong in the northeast. So you can see how that enabled them in one fell swoop to plug two enormous strategicals that would have taken years and a lot more money to fill during normal times. Wachovia was Fargo deal was a more traditional, if you like, a banking deal. Two uh, fairly large retail banks with very little geographical overlap. One doing fairly well, well, uh, Fargo, which is based in San Francisco and a, a strong presence on the West Coast. Uh, Wachovia in deep trouble because uh, they'd gone crazy on subprime mortgages, which uh, Wells was able to acquire at a fairly uh, decent price, this time though without government assistance. And there, it's a traditional banking merger in the sense that you put together the two franchises, you start cutting costs, you cut overlapping branches, and you end up with a much, much stronger position in across, almost across the entire country. That was Francesco Guerrera in New York earlier today. And to our final topic, Stephen Green, the chairman of HSBC, and his departure for government and the reshuffle at the bank that's going to have to result. Now, this was a fairly... Quick move, Stephen Green had to make up his mind whether he wanted to take up this this offer of uh, the post of trade minister fairly quickly. That means that the HSBC board has been rather rushed into trying to find a successor. Arturo, can I bring you in there? What, what do you think is the best solution for HSBC? Well, it's always very difficult to give a name, uh, but I think HSBC will do well if they find uh, an appropriate candidate internally. HSBC has been trying to portray itself uh, as, as an emerging markets uh, bank uh, quite uh, quite desperate if you if you want in in, in the last 6 months whilst uh, it is still more driven by its european and us businesses so i think it would be very very important uh, to find somebody that can support and grow uh, as quickly as possible 
uh, this emerging markets um, angle. Charlene, the, there are essentially two candidates for the job. One would be Mike Gagan, who's the current chief executive, moving up to the role of chairman, which would probably usher in Stuart Gulliver, the investment banking head, as the next chief executive. The other would be less disruptive, I suppose, in that sense. It would be John Thornton, a current non-executive, replacing Stephen Green as a non-executive chairman, leaving Mike Gagan in the role of CEO. What is your sense of, you know, which is the most likely of those two outcomes? Well, you say the the latter would be less destructive. It, it would also be less controversial from an investor point of view. I mean, I think investors may have an issue with Michael Geegan being elevated to the position of executive chairman from chief executive. That does actually go against the standard corporate governance. So the bank may get some sort of pushback from investors if it chooses to go down that route. But, you know, from a uh, experience point of view, that does seem quite a logical move. And Stuart Gulliver uh, has headed up the investment bank. It would be quite a big jump for him to take over as chief executive and, again, could bring up the sort of issues we've seen with the promotion of Bob Diamond, the head of the investment bank, coming through. But he is very well regarded. He does have a very close relationship with Michael Geegan. So that could work internally quite well. Um John Thornton, though, uh, is quite highly regarded. He's got lots of experience in Asia and China. He's already been working very closely with the board. He's the highest paid non-executive director, so he he has got a very close relationship with with the senior executives at the bank. Uh, And and obviously that would leave Michael Geegan in his position uh, based in Hong Kong, which would be uh, easier for the bank. So it'll be really interesting to see which way the bank goes here. I think we should get a decision on this fairly soon. And before we finish up on HSBC, I think it's worth looking as well at the benefits that Stephen Green's appointment could bring to government. Now, he is probably hard to imagine a a better qualified private sector appointment to that role. Mr. Green knows the world trade markets better than most people, doesn't he, Charlie? Absolutely. I mean, he brings huge experience to the government. He's emerged from the financial crisis with a very strong reputation, obviously has very good business contacts around the world, particularly in Far Eastern markets with his experience of HSBC. Uh, He's regarded as highly intelligent, a big thinker. You know, I think it is a really good appointment for the government. And also for the banking industry, you know, having someone like Stephen Green essentially fighting their corner within the government ranks. Yeah, because he won't be just focused on trade, will he? He'll sit on this, I think it's the Treasury Subcommittee on Banking. Maybe that was quite a incentive for him to go in there and and take the job. So he will be very closely involved with these huge decisions the government is making for the banking industry over the next year, uh, particularly whether it will go as far as recommending that they split up. So I think having Stephen Green there, who the the Commission on Banking has to report to and run their ideas by, I mean, he's obviously a big advocate of universal banking. So I think that and possibly combined with Bob Diamond's uh, elevation to chief, chief executive of Barclays shows that banks are really not going to take any suggestion that they should break up sort of lying down. I think they'll fight very strongly against that. That's sadly all we have time for today. We'll be keeping a close eye on the reaction from the banking sector to the stringent rules from Basel III. And we look forward to that series on big mergers starting this week in the FT, uh, kicking off in the middle of the week with the analysis of uh, B of A Merrill. And obviously we'll be keeping a close eye on the HSBC chairman succession story. All that's left for me is to thank our guest Arturo de Frias Marquez and Brooke and Charlene in the studio. Banking Weekly was produced by LJ Filotrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.